Dr. Scholler, he's a, currently the New Testament professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. Now, I'm not going to read all this. There are three pages of it. <laughs> but let me tell you about Dr. Scholler. Dr. Scholler received his early education BA and MA at Wheaton College, a premier evangelical college, his BD from Gordon Divinity School, and his DTHD, Dr. Theology, from Harvard Divinity School in Harvard University. Now, that's the academic part. Then he wrote like three and a half pages worth of articles across these 41 years on New Testament. He was interviewed on L.A. Times. My understanding is there is somebody here from L.A. Times, and I don't know who the person is, but somebody's here. Oh, you are the person, okay. I follow him. You follow him. (laughs) Interviews L.A. Times about his illness and cancer, and how steadfastly his hope comes forth, his passion comes forth. And on top of that, he has been a major person that has steered this denomination through some difficulties in interpretation of theology and stayed as on course, commissioned on a number of denominational commissions he served. So we're delighted Dr. Scholler is able to be here. And his topic is, I'm going to read this to you, how the gospel shaped my mind and heart, my long journey of faith and obedience. Remember, at the backdrop of all this passion is this continued struggle with his cancer. And those of us pastors understand the struggle we have in our own church. So we're delighted today. David, you could join with us. I love the smile every time. I see you, you smile at me. We're passionate about you. And this denomination deeply loves you. And we love you very much. Trust you can hear me. Let me just say at the beginning, my voice sounds a little off. Uh, That's the result of several years of chemotherapy, and nothing can be done to correct it. So, if you can adjust, I can adjust. Good. If thou but suffer God to guide thee, which we say is a very precious hymn to me, had I chosen a second one, it would have been Spofford's hymn. I have always loved that hymn. And you may know that one of his children, by the name of Bertha Spofford, founded a community in Jerusalem early in the see West. You probably know all about it. But on occasion, I collect books. Some of you might know that. And I recently acquired a copy of Bertha Spofford's History of Her Jerusalem Community, signed by Bertha Spofford. 
it was a dear purchase from England, but it's a very precious book. If thou would suffer God to guide thee, was sung at our wedding 47 years ago. It was sung at my ordination 41 years ago. It was sung at, uh, at my installation as Dean of Northern Baptist Seminary 30, 26 years ago. And it expresses many of the deepest theological convictions of my life. And that's why I wanted us to sing it together today. The scripture that has had the deepest impact on my life is Romans 8, 38, and 39. That nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That has been the anchor text in my life for years and years. Now, I decided, oh, here, here I'm speaking to a group of people. You're all friends, and many of you have known me for a long time, and there's even one guy in the back row who's known me since I was 23 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, Gary Clark. And <clears throat> so, you, you have to be honest. It reminds me of the time when I was preparing for a speaking engagement like this, I was going to travel, and I was packing my suitcase, and my older daughter, a teenager at the time, said, where are you going, Dad? And I explained, and she said, do those people really want to listen to you? (laughs) (laughs) I grew up, so I'm going to tell you the story of my life in somewhat of a structured way and try to draw from that the lessons that I think are important for being a servant of God. I grew up, as many of you know, in the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. Now, if you know what that is, you already know a lot about me. And in fact, when I was a teenager, my pastor was a member of the Council of 14. And that was the ruling body of the G-A-R-B-C. And so I got the best of G-A-R-B life. And it raised a lot of issues for me. Now, my church did give me a love for the Bible and a passion to study the Bible. And my parents were wonderful Christians. But I was taught a lot of things that bothered me. And there were three areas in particular. One was the area of women in the church. One was the area of eschatology. And the other was what I'd call ecclesiology or separatism as it was known in the G-A-R-B. And I, I'm not quite sure, unless we say it's the providence of God, how I started to meditate on these things as a 14 and 15 year old kid. I read Calvin's Institutes when I was 15. That was not something a general teenager in the G-R-B did. 
also read John R. Rice's bobbed-haired, bossy wives and women preachers, which at that time was a classic book against women in ministry. And that's what my pastor gave me, and I devoured it. But I was really uncomfortable because our church supported female missionaries. And when they would come home from the field, they would speak only on Wednesday nights, of course. But there was one missionary in particular. Her name was Myrtle Gage. She was powerful. And she'd give a report from the field on Wednesday night. And I'd go home and say to myself, good night, she preached. And it began to make me think that maybe women <coughs> could preach. And then the eschatology. Somehow I felt it was wrong. You know, every week my pastor preached on France in the book of Revelation. <laughs> Russia in the book of Revelation. <laughs> I study all week and I could never find France. <laughs> And then I listened to him preach, and you know, it kind of made sense. I made outlines that I typed up of all his sermons. I had almost 2,000 sermon outlines. I had them all cataloged. But I doubted a lot of what he was saying. And then the separatism really got to me. The two worst groups, as you might know, were Roman Catholics and Pentecostals. <laughs> so as soon as I was able to drive, I took the car, I drove all by myself to a Roman Catholic monastery. I never told my parents this. They're both deceased now. I never told them I did this. And I went to that monastery. I just wandered in. You know, in Minnesota you could drive in 15 Fifteen-year-old kid, some priest came over and said, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'd like to know what you believe, and so on. And I pondered all that, and I drove back home, and I thought, I think they might be Christians. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the largest Pentecostal church in Minnesota then was called Souls Harbor in Minneapolis. I lived in Rochester, 75 miles away. So one weekend, I conned my parents into letting me take the car because I had a girlfriend who lived up there. And I drove up there, and I went to Souls Harbor. I was sure I would never come out alive. <laughs> and I came away from there, and I thought, good night. These people are Christians. <laughs> and these were shocking revelations to me. And it was in that context that I felt the call to ministry. So I went to college, which was very helpful for me, because most of my best friends turned out to be people other than GARV folk. <laughs> Although in college I did meet Dan Weiss and... Uh, many others who came from that same background. But it was very liberating to me. And it was in college that I really came to the conviction that women could be in ministry. 
It was in college that I gave up being a dispensationalist. It took me a little longer to give up being a premillennialist, but <laughs> um, I had those deep struggles. And one of the commitments I made after I graduated from college and I entered seminary is that I would teach an adult class in a local church every Sunday. And I have done that ever since 1961 until the last few years when I can't quite do it every Sunday anymore. And I believe very deeply, somehow growing out of my experience, that if I wanted to understand the church, the best way for me to do it was to teach a class of adults in a local church. And that would keep me in touch with real people, with their theological questions, and would be one of the most important things I could do as a person. Now, in seminary, there were many influences on my life. And I then went to study at Harvard, which, of course, most of my family and previous friends thought was the worst thing I could possibly do. <laughs> this would surely destroy every trace of faith I ever had. <laughs> and my doctor father at Harvard uh, was a man named Helmut Kester, as liberal and as far to the left as you can go. And he's still living. And he and I still correspond regularly. And I recently wrote a short essay about how we used to discuss things that bothered him in an evangelical. And we would discuss the resurrection of Jesus and certain other things. And he always said, I can't understand how someone as brilliant as you, David, can believe this. <laughs> but it was good dialogue. It, it helped form me as to who I was. And all during this time, I also worked in churches. I worked at Tremont Temple in Boston. I did other kinds of ministry. I went to the church that ordained me, and I said, if you'll appoint me associate pastor, I won't require any salary. I just want the experience. So I did that. I was ordained. And then I was called to pastor a little church in Boston. A tiny church. On a good Sunday, we had 90 people. And the first Sunday I was there, I met the matriarch of the church. She was in her 90s. And I knew that I either would get her blessing or not. And at the end of the service, she gave me her blessing. And she died Tuesday morning. Oh. I'd only been to two funerals in my life. I was just a young kid. I didn't have a clue as to what to do. The only thing I could think of to do was go to the funeral home and sit there. So I did, 12 hours a day for the next three days. 
I met every single member of the church. Because they all came to see the matriarch. And by my second week, I was already, quote, a hero, unquote, in this little church. And I began to learn a lot about pastoral ministry. I'd love to tell all the stories of the things I did, people I visited, as just a young man who didn't know much. And I would be faced with these kinds of issues. But it led me to think. I was doing my doctoral studies. I was pastoring this church. At that time, I was teaching high school kids in Sunday school class. And I wanted to invite a Roman Catholic priest to preach in the church. And I told my high school kids, and they said, if you do that, our parents will throw you out. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I invited a Roman Catholic priest, a very important Jesuit in Boston. <laughs> and he came, and he preached, and everybody loved it. And those kinds of experiences started to shape who I thought I was. Now, along the way, earlier, right after college, I married a woman named Jeanette Mudgeon. Some of you know her. She's an absolutely incredible, wonderful woman. Brilliant. I had decided that I wanted to marry a woman who was brilliant. I met Jeanette. We had our first date when I was a sophomore. Three weeks later, I wrote a letter to my parents said, and said I found the woman I want to marry. It took Jeanette a little longer to be convinced of that. <laughs> but I had no doubt. And we've been married now a little over or 47 years. As my father would say, we've had 38 years of happy marriage. It's not bad out of 47. <laughs> and, of course, living with Jeanette, let us all the time discuss the place and women in the family, in the home, in the church, in society. And then we had two daughters. And raising two daughters has been an interesting experience. And I still talk to them almost every day. One's 33 and one's 30. Wonderful experience. And not all those experiences were easy. Both of my daughters had pro problems in their lives when they were teenagers. I'm sure that's not happening to any of you. But learning to cope with that also helped shape my ministry. But I felt called to be a seminary professor. That was a conviction I had starting about 1961. Although I have a friend who I grew up with. He claims that I made that commitment when we were just little boys. All I can remember is that I said I would go into the ministry, and he said he'd become a millionaire. And that's how we divide up the territory. <laughs> so I went into the ministry. My friend retired at age 50 as a millionaire. 
And you know, in the 38 years I've been teaching in seminary, he sends a large donation every month to whatever seminary I'm teaching in. He mails it to my house, so I will see how much he's getting. (laughs) (laughs) And he's still giving. We, We are still the best of friends. I just wish he'd get more. <laughs> and it might be interesting to know that my very first job interview was given to me by Bob Campbell. I was a Harvard student. Somehow he'd heard of me. Probably there weren't that many Baptist Harvard students. And he was dean then of the California Baptist Seminary in Covina. He flew out to Massachusetts, took me out to dinner at this wonderful restaurant called the Pillar House, and talked to me about coming to teach at California Baptist. And I said, Dean Campbell, I'm too young. I'm still in my doctoral program. It would be foolish to carry on this conversation any further. And, of course, that turned out to be a very wise Thing, considering all that happened. But Bob Campbell and I began our friendship then in 1967 and still see him many Sundays uh, of the year since he uh, attends the same church I do. And when I started my teaching career, I've taught in four seminaries. The most important commitment I think I made at the beginning of my teaching was people would ask me, what do you teach? And they expected the answer, you know, New Testament, Old Testament, church history or whatever. And I would say, I teach students. And I have always loved my students. I hear from my students every day by email. Students that I had at the beginning of my career, from 1969 on. And it's a special pride to me that Annie Dieselberg was not technically one of my students. Her husband was Jeff. And I got to know Jeff and Annie very well and have a deep love for them. And I'm so proud of my former students. What they do is an amazing catalog. You might enjoy knowing that Jeff Dieselberg, Doug, do you remember this? Jeff and three other guys, whose names I don't now remember, formed a little singing group at Northern Baptist Seminary called the Preach Boys. And they modeled themselves on the Beach Boys. They dressed like that. And all their music was syncopated exactly like the Beach Boys. But they wrote songs about the Preach Boys. And they were entertainment at almost every banquet we had at Northern Baptist. You remember that, Doug? That was, that was just wonderful. Doug, Doug is another one of my former students of whom I'm so proud. And... I wanted to teach students. I wanted to invest in the life of my students. And 
their issues. And that led to a lot of interesting things. And one of the other early commitments I made, a different kind of commitment, was I read G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. Well, G.K. Chesterton converted to Roman Catholicism. And he wrote this little book, I think it was 1908 or so. And the thing I learned in that book more than anything else, is to accept ambiguity. But the sign of maturity is to be able to live with ambiguity. And I tell that to all my students. People who think they have all the answers to all of life's questions are fake. <laughs> Even if they can build big kingdoms, mega churches there's no integrity to it life is filled with ambiguity and facing that theologically on theological questions personal questions is an important thing and I tell my students a lot of things I tell my students lots of stories that if they're going to ever speak on anything authoritatively, they need to have it be real. Now, two kinds of examples I can give. I've taught a lot of students who oppose women in ministry. And I've always said to them, you have no right to oppose a woman in ministry until you've made friends with a woman who's called to the ministry and you've listened to her story. At least that much. I now say to my students, you have no right to make a statement on homosexuality until you have made friends with a Christian homosexual person. The conclusions you draw, that's another issue. But you need to know people. Two of my best friends are two men who live together and I spend time with them every month. Um, it's important. It's not the lifestyle I believe God intends. I'm quite clear on that. But I think if we're going to operate with integrity, we need to be able to talk with anyone. Like Annie Dieselberg. Or whatever your life calling brings you to. To talk with everybody. Now, as a scholar, I feel I am there to serve the church. My scholarship is for the church. But it's also for the guild, as we call it. You know, the, the group of New Testament scholars in the world. We're, we're a relatively small group. And part of integrity, quite frankly, is as a New Testament scholar to be recognized in the guild so that scholars in other parts of the world as well as in the United States can say, ah, sure, yeah. You know, I, I once met a very famous German scholar, I mean really famous, and it was his wife that was at some cocktail hour over in Europe. And he introduced me to his wife, and he said, this is David Schoeller, which meant nothing to his wife. 
And he said, well, you know, he's a household word. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this is crazy. Not a household word. But, if I may say it, I have made an effort to dialogue with New Testament scholars all over the world to do things that give me space in the guild. So I talked to a lot of people in the guild. I've recently been having long conversations with a Jewish scholar, a Jewish feminist scholar. And we've been writing emails. In the last email she sent me, my wife got a kick out of it because it started, Oh, dearest David. <laughs> well, if it's all right for me to say it, I get a certain pleasure out of the fact that I've lived my life in a way that I can dialogue with a Jewish feminist scholar, disagree with her on Jesus and on Paul, and she writes and says, Oh, dearest David, maybe you're right on some points. And we, we dialogue back and forth. To me, that is precious. And my belief is that that enables me to be a better theologian for the church. The more I know, the better theologian I can be. And as you know, the person who can give a simple explanation of a complex problem is usually a person who knows a great deal. If you don't know very much, you can't explain it simply. So that's part of it. And then the questions of the personal character of a pastor. We all have flaws. But I believe that we need to exalt integrity, genuine care for others, deep faith with the avoidance of the cult of the self. I just have no toleration anywhere in my being for pastors who engage in what I would call the cult of the self. It hurts them, it hurts the church, it hurts the world. Some years ago, uh, when I first met Henry Mitchell, you all know Henry? I mean, one of the great African-American preachers of our generation. I don't know how old Henry is now, but He's getting along. And Henry and I turned out, we were often roommates at various things at Valley Forge. So Henry and I would, when it was time for bed, we'd sit there on the edge of our beds, talk. And of course, he was an older, wiser man. And I said to him one night, Henry, I'm sure people have given you advice. What's the best advice you ever got? And he said, well, when I was a young man, some old pastor said to me, don't use your influence until you have it. <laughs> and I've pondered that virtually every day since Henry said that to me. Don't use your influence until you have it. 
You have to, in a sense, earn the right to influence because of your integrity, because of your faith, because of the character, because of the way you relate to people and care for people. I think that's very important. Now, in many ways, I've had a peaches and cream life, if I may put it in this context. I've had wonderful parents. My mother and father, you know, they grew up dirt poor, not much education. My mother went to seventh grade. My father went to twelfth grade. The first year of their marriage, they ate bread and beans. And, but as things went along, my father started to succeed in business. By the time I was 10 years old, my father was a distinguished businessman in town. And had moved into what you might call the upper middle class. And I had a lot of benefits. And then I had wonderful education. A wonderful wife, wonderful children. And although it sounds very presumptuous to say it, I've never applied for a job. All four of my seminary posts I've been invited to. I've never filled out a job application. Life has been really good. I was traveling all over the world. I was teaching in Moscow when 9-11 happened. But I came home from that trip. And about a month later, I had a pain in my rear end. I went to my doctor. He said, I think it's a muscle spasm. It'll go away. Didn't go away. And by January of 2002, I knew I had cancer. By February, I knew that I had colorectal cancer. And my surgeon said to me, I think I can do surgery. If I don't, you'll die in six months or sooner. And if I do do surgery, it will be one of the most difficult surgeries that is possible to do. So I had surgery. I was in the hospital for six weeks in absolute pain. I came home and spent several months in the hospital bed in pain and all kinds of problems. And my surgeon concluded that I wouldn't live very long. I did see him uh, 10 days ago. I still have to visit him regularly. And he's so proud of surgery. (laughs) (laughs) And he was training a younger doctor. And he said, so he was explaining to her all that he did. And he said, you know, that was really a difficult surgery. He said, I didn't really know if it worked. And then when it was over, David had all these problems. And I thought, it's all over. And then 
I sort of recovered. And I had a few months of thinking everything was fine. And then my I learned my cancer had spread to both lungs. And I went into a level of chemotherapy that was really hell on earth. Most miserable seven months I've ever experienced. And I came out of that and started to recover. Since then, I have been in treatment. I'll be in treatment as long as I live. I'm on chemotherapy five days a week and other treatments. I take a lot of medicines. And I'm always fatigued. I normally don't get up until 9.30 in the morning. Today I have to get up early. And uh, I'm dizzy most of the time from the medications. I'm fatigued. I'm always anemic. Um, I have a lot of serious issues. But look at it another way. I'm alive. the author of life. I've always taught that death is an enemy. 
And there are a lot of Christians who've been upset at me, my sister included. And the reason is that the Bible says death is an enemy. Death is the result of sin. Death is overcome in Christ's resurrection. What God has given us is life. He's given us ultimately eternal life, but he's given us life right here in this world, and we're to enjoy. Life is to be enjoyed. Life is to be lived. And so I want to enjoy living, and I want to commit myself to living as positive and joyful a life as I possibly can. Now, I don't want to die. But let me tell you, when you're in the situation I'm in, and maybe some of you are, I suspect, based on my own experience before 2002, I didn't get up every morning and ponder questions of life and death. Now I get up every morning, and the first thing I think about is, while I'm alive for another day, how will this day go? When am I going to get the ultimate bad news? Those thoughts go through my mind every day. And there's not really an escape from that one moment. But you can live the alternate life of joy. I have to go to my cancer center once every 14 days. I administer my chemo myself. Um, but I go to my cancer center every 14 days. And I know, some of you know, I mean, I go there, I've made friends with every secretary, every person in the business office, every nurse, every doctor. Um, kind of fun to go. <laughs> in a way. And talk, and I talk to the other patients and try to encourage them. And I sometimes jokingly say we sit in the, the circle of the dying. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're in cancer treatment, you sit in kind of a circle so the nurses can look around and keep track of everybody at the same time. So you sit there looking at each other. I look around and I think, wow, I think I'm getting along better than anyone else in the room. I don't know why. That's how I often feel. So I talk to a lot of patients. There was an elderly lady this week when I was there sitting in the chair next to me, brand new patient. Scared to death. Absolutely scared to death. So I talked to one of the nurses and I said, do you think if I tell her I've been coming here five years, that will encourage her or depress her? (laughs) She said, no, that will encourage her. I said, I've been hanging out here five years. I said, you know, don't worry. You're going to have a little rough time. And She didn't want to lose her hair. And I said, don't worry about that. That's that's nothing. Uh, so it's been wonderful. And I find a lot of joy in life. Now, in addition to Romans 8, there are two other scriptures 
that have touched me deeply. One is in James. <clears throat> now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live for do this or do that. Now, oh, I've read that scripture. I've taught that scripture many times in my life. And I was even a little shy about saying, if it's the Lord's will. That seemed to me overly pious. But you know, that's really the way to live. If it's the Lord's will. And then a passage in 2 Corinthians. At the, in chapter 12, you know, this is about Paul. How he's arguing with his braggadocious opponents. And so Paul outbrags them and says he went up to the third heaven and all that stuff. And then uh, because of that, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. My dear and wonderful pastor, Steve Hasper, recently preached a sermon. I think the title was Suffering Successful. And when I saw that title, I thought, wow, what in the world is this going to be? And I think he hit the nail on the head with this passage. You suffer successfully when you take the trials that are given to you and realize that it's only in your weakness that the power of God is displayed. When we try to display the power of God in and of ourselves, it's always wrong. It's always wrong. That's how I've tried to live my life. And I'm really honored to be with you. It's a joy to see so many faces of people I know, some of you I don't know. But I'm so honored uh, that I could have some of your time and be with you. And uh, um, I, can't, I can't say your name. Connie. No, Connie. Yeah. Gertie. Gertie. I'm sorry, Gertie. I don't know if you all know Gertie, but some years back, I was in a meeting with Gertie. What church are you from, Gertie? Evangelical Baptist Church. All right. Your pastor? No. Okay. I was in a meeting with Gertie, and I discovered she stood up and reported that she had watched a series of videos that I had made. They were professionally made in a studio, six videos, on women in ministry. 
And Gertie showed those videos, I think, in her church. And it led to some changes. But this is just one little thing. And I met Gertie on that occasion. And ever since then, we exchange emails now and then. And that's, it's wonderful to make connections with you. God bless you. And I think we have time for you to ask questions or make declarations.
the so-called Baptist point of view was better. So he never turned in a paper. So I had to give him an F. And then his father was visiting him from Minnesota. This was in Massachusetts. And they invited us over for dinner. And his father came to the door. And my wife and I knocked on the door. And his father opened the door and he said, So you're the one who corrupted my son. (laughs) Shortly after that, the son, Paul, became an American Baptist pastor in Michigan. And then his pastor in Montana, Idaho. One of my best friends. I have another question. I have a question to say. I love you, student. In 1992, I had a plan to fuller. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't remember. He gave us a simple A. Good. But anyway, Joey, I still have my notes in front of the books. But, I mean, that really helped me to deal with women in church. Nowadays, they want to speak more in church with my wife. So, what I'm saying is that I do learn a lot, and I really appreciate what you're talking about. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Pastor Kalinsky. I'm really touched by what you said today. And uh, one of your students is one of my best friends, the Reverend Jamie Smith. And I know how she's been touched by you and how she's touched my life. Sad that she's not here with us today because she's having trouble with a kidney stone and is in deep pain, isn't here. But I think as I listen to what you said, um, it seems that relationships are very important to you. They are. And even, and I, and I guess I'd like to have you help help us understand your wisdom and how is it that you are able to build a dialogue and to develop that kind of relational quality even with somebody that you disagree with. Um, can you give us some insight in terms of... I imagine that you do a lot of listening before you say anything. But um, I guess I'd like some help in that area because I, I want to... I, I think relation. I've decided that relationships are extremely important in my faith journey and in my career and everything else. But when I run up against somebody who I disagree with, I think sometimes maybe I become very intolerant. And I, I'd like some help from your wisdom in terms of how can you help me be more relational and to build dialogue and maybe even be willing to change my position. Well, that's a wonderful agenda. I don't know how much I can contribute. One thing is, you have to have a good sense of yourself and your own convictions. That, what you think are the ultimate things you believe in, you need to be clear on. And have a good sense of yourself. So that, in any relationship, you never feel threatened. You know, if people, I, I have files and files at home of hate mail. 
want to attack me, that's just fine. Because I'm not threatened. I think you have to reach that point in order to build that kind of relationship. Second, not everyone has the same personality, but I have kind of an extroverted, friendly personality that I think I got from my mother and father. And uh, I just enjoy being with people, talking with people. In the scholarly world, I have a reputation, but I know everybody. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, it reminds me of going to a meeting with uh, Christy Pullen, I think, and she and I were walking together and trying to have a conversation. And after about 20 minutes, she said, you know, this is not working. She said, every 30 seconds, someone stops to talk to you. You know everybody. <laughs> so you have to have that kind of wanting to talk to people. And so, you know, I have a couple of good friends at Dallas Seminary. And uh, one of them in particular has written something quite nasty about me. And, <laughs> You know, when I see him, I just throw my arms around him and I say, Hey, brother, how's it going? You know, I don't like what you wrote, but that's okay. And we laugh and, and we talk a little. Here and there you make a few inroads. Because I'm not threatened. I'm willing to face. That, that's one of the biggest things. And then time, listening to people being willing just to, to let things percolate. You know, it's... Um, I don't know, I just had this knack or ability to make friends. The, the leading feminist scholar, uh, lesbian scholar for antiquity, is a woman named Bernadette Bruton. She and I are good friends. I have, it always embarrassed some of my colleagues that we'd go to a meeting and here she is, this most famous lesbian, and she would always run up and give me a hug. <laughs> and my real conservative colleagues would look at me <laughs> and some of them, quite frankly, they didn't, they didn't care if they ever talked to her. I can remember being at a dance with her in the Netherlands I think or Denmark, I don't know. And I don't think. So she and I just sat on a little bench and we discussed Paul's theology. <laughs> <laughs> now those experiences allow me entree to other experiences. That, you know, they're you also have to face the fact there are some people you can't talk to. They don't have a bit of interest. James Dobson doesn't give a rip about my opinion. <laughs> Nor do I give much rip about it. <laughs> you know, in our student newspaper at Fuller, someone had a one-liner about Dobson. And, of course, some conservative students sent it to him. 
And he wrote a blistering letter to the president of Fuller and all that. And my view is you can't dialogue with him on some of these issues. It just doesn't work. I don't have to convert him. I'm more interested in trying to change the people who are still pliable, like most students, who are really seeking to build a life. I have a question. Um, I'm going to kneel down here for you, David. You're great, too. I wanted to. I was on a boat in Alaska. The boat stopped, and you inside, in front of me, was the fjord. And the boat stopped. The fjord is not moving, and the glacier. But on the surface of the water was this large chunks of ice flowing slowly in one direction, and then small chunks of ice rapidly moving in the opposite direction. I asked the steward, I said, you know, this is interesting. Two movements on the same surface. The captain said, I mean, the steward said, the large chunks of icebergs are moved by deep ocean currents caused by magnetic forces and gravity. The top movement is caused by winds that change rapidly back and forth. Now, my question to you, David, 41 years of teaching, preaching, Dialogue. Uh, what are the deep currents that move our culture? The church must pay attention to for the kingdom of God. Well, that's a Sam J question. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, probably the best person to answer that question is Sam J. <laughs> myself much of a cultural analyst. I'm a little bit Neanderthal. <laughs> I, I have finally gotten a cell phone and uh, I do know how to send emails. Oh, <laughs> but that's, you know, I think one of the deep currents in our culture that's negative is the culture of the self. <laughs> and the culture of entitlement. I have a right to do anything. And the promotion of self. I think it's destructive of families. It's destructive of relationships. It's unhealthy for the world. It's unhealthy for the church. The sense of community is being eroded. Now and then we see brilliant examples like the Amish community with that their school shooting. And you know what? It commands a kind of respect. But our culture generally isn't made up of that. Uh, I think another deep reality of our culture is people are against the church. But they're really interested in spirituality and God. I find, I used to be more shy on this question. I just, you know, I wouldn't just talk to somebody about God. But now I'm more bold, you know. So uh, 
in my favorite restaurants, the waitresses, uh, I talk to them about God. They just have to endure it. I make friends with them. And uh, sit next to someone on an airplane, whatever. So I think that that's an issue the church has to face. That kind of thing. Um, I think the issue of, I don't know whether to call it pluralism or what is the right term. But we have come to a point in society where accepting a certain degree of pluralism is taken for granted. And yet, there are enormous problems to work up. There are problems within each community, be it Asian, African American, uh, Hispanic, the white folk, or Native American Indians, and not to mention the bridging problems. But the pluralism is with us. And most of us want to get on the train. <coughs> most of society wants to get on the train. Now we have hate mongers, but most of society wants to get on the train. But there aren't many conductors. Mm-hmm. And we don't know quite how to do it. Well, those would be my three biggest ideas. If I could just tell one story on our, on our last cruise. My wife and I, when we go on these cruises, we make... We're really gregarious people. We like to make friends. We have a lot of friends. But we made a promise to ourselves that on cruises, we were not going to meet anybody. (laughs) We were just going to... Just the two of us. You know? It's worked fairly well. Um, Not totally, but fairly well. But on this last cruise... So we always request in the dining room a table for two. Well, we got a table for two and just to our this direction was another table for two and it was quite close. So this couple sat down and of course we said good evening and so on and we began to talk and then we learned uh, that they used to go to church but they don't go to church anymore. They don't know if they believe in God anymore. And well, we just kept talking to them and so on. And uh, turns out this woman's father had been a big executive with Dr. Pepper, which happens to be one of my favorite soft drinks. So she has now mailed me some Dr. Pepper memorabilia. <laughs> Her mother now has a terminal illness. The last email I got from her, she wrote and said, hugs and kisses. I mean, good night. I would have never dreamed. Now here's a couple that we hope will have an increasing chance to touch. Because now, you know, it's email conversation, but it's an illustration of the hunger that a lot of people have. There are some people who will turn you off, you know. Does that help answer? 
Gary had a question. Gary? Since he's known me since I was 23, now to give him a chance. I would like to encourage all the American Baptists here that God hears and answers American Baptist prayers. 
a professor of New Testament, a distinguished American Baptist leader, you are a blessing to us. American Baptist Church of Los Angeles, May 6, 2007. Singing our last hymn. Before we go on, we're going to have a brunch for all of you. You take the elevator to the second floor or the stairs, and there's a buffet all prepared for you. Just help yourself. And those of you that are Asian American pastors, they're having a meeting here in this room after the brunch. Now, as you go out the uh, the table, you outside the door, you pick up this ministry. This is American Baptist Churches of Los Angeles annual report. So please pick them up. And there's an envelope here. Where God is moving you to help support the ministries. Your church helps you. Uh, before we go on to that, I'd like to recognize this is the first time in 100 years that I can think of, that we now have the American Baptist Churches of Southwest. There are delegates here from Hawaii, from Arizona, Southern California, and Nevada that are represented here. We are one family, and God has gifted us five states to evangelize as David says it, just love them. Now, I mean, I love the way you put it. You don't need a team of evangelists. What you need is each one of us. How many of us ever keep in touch with the great school ex-girlfriends? I'm a pro. <laughs> <laughs> it's powerful to listen to a, 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 a scholar of his stature to talk about the passion of the gospel, the passion of relationships, because that's what made him such a well-loved among his, his worst critics. And, and we've lost that. I, I, gosh, American Baptists ought to be proud about it. We are a unique family of God that are gifted with, with such incredible passion. So let's remember, thank you, David.